Good morning. If you've got a Bible, go to 1 John chapter 5. We are finishing our study in the book of 1 John today. And uh, you're going to find that John is not going to end on a light note. He's not going to wind it down. He's going to kind of finish with a bang. So uh, if you're turning there, that's going to be our passage today. But I wanted to take a moment. I want to pray for our students. I see some students in here today. This week was Spirit Week for our students, middle school, high school. They joined with uh, students from other churches to spend each day of the week this last week. Uh, exercising different spiritual disciplines. So if you have a student in the student ministry, they might've been participating in that, hope they were. Um, And as I was just thinking about that, you know, disciplines of scripture study and memory and fasting and and others. I was just thinking about, I got to reflecting when I was a junior in high school, I was invited into fasting for a specific issue at a certain time. And and that was the first, my first experience with that spiritual discipline of going without food and taking that time to pray and seek the Lord. And, you know, I didn't know at that time, but it became this beginning of a journey of God, uh, uncovering God's call in my own life. And so I just couldn't help but think this week for our students, as, as many of you were practicing those disciplines, I was just praying, God, would you use this time now to begin to unfold for them your plan for their lives, your will for their lives. I didn't have any way of knowing that at that time as a 17-year-old, as I was engaging that just very simple spiritual discipline for a specific reason at that moment, that God was gonna use that to kind of as a launch pad into many other things that ended up leading towards my discernment of my vocational calling. And, and I'm sure many of you have had that experience where God has used different spiritual disciplines and the practice of them to lead you forward in life. And so I just wanna take a moment to pray for our students that have just practiced those disciplines for the week. Can we pray together for that? And let's just pray that over our body. We're thankful for the way you shape our life together, students. So Father, we thank you for our middle schoolers or high schoolers. And we're thankful for the way that you shape our life together as a church through them. You make us who we are in part through them, uh, through the gifts they bring to bear in our body, through their faith, through their growing maturity. We thank you that you receive them right where they are and just as they are. Lord, could we ask that the disciplines that many of them were participating in this week, that you would use them in ways they can't even imagine now. We just would love to see our, our, we can picture in our minds, Lord, the immense amount of fruit that could come for your kingdom through the lives of these young ones. And we ask that you would make it so. We ask that you would give them great freedom in you and joy in you, that they would find their identity in you, that they would know that if they are in Christ, they are your son, they're your daughter. It is firm, it is sure. And would you take the week of practicing those disciplines now for our students and those at these other churches that have, um, are gathering under places right now, would you use them as a, as a step, as a launching pad towards helping them understand exactly the work for your kingdom that you are calling them into in the days ahead. And so make them fruitful now and in the future. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we doing okay, everybody good? All right, fantastic. Uh, When I was 17, that was when uh, that whole thing around fasting came. But around the same time, when I was a senior in high school, actually, we had, uh, I had a group of buddies and uh, a lot of guys, but girls too, through the youth group. And there was one uh, girl, Sarah Miller, who had a pool in her backyard. Most of us did not have pools. So we spent a lot of time at Sarah's house. Uh, When you grew up in the South, in the summer, you're always looking for a pool. Just get me water. Find me a way to get in water because it's like 105 degrees. And so nighttime swims are some of the most fun. Nighttime swims, everybody like a good nighttime swim? All right, so I find the water here really cold even in summer. Anybody else? It's like, yes, thank you. All right, it's just cold all the time, year round. 
Uh, and so we would go swimming, you know, so it was, uh, you know, nighttime, daytime or whatever. Well, Sarah's family, one, I think, weekend or weeknight, I don't remember, they'd gone out of town. Uh, they'd say, oh, we're going out of town, whatever. And so we were all together hanging out, me and my buddies, all guys, and we were like, we want to go swimming. We we're like, well, but the Millers are home. We were like, surely they won't mind. So y'all don't imitate me on this one, okay? Uh, so we went, we jumped their fence and had no thought about the fact that the neighbors might call the police or anything like that, you know? So we park, we jump the fence, we swim for a while. But you know when you're, you're somewhere and you're not sure you're supposed to be there? You're kind of partly confident that it's probably okay because the Millers know us, they love us, we're not causing any harm, we weren't being reckless or whatever. But also, we didn't ask and we don't even know if this is really okay. And so we were kind of just like, it was kind of the hilarity of normally when we'd swim, we would be kind of going, there'd be a lot of noise and splashing and all that kind of stuff. And we're just kind of quietly milling around the pool. Just like, hopefully this is okay. We're gonna, you know, whatever. So we're swimming for like a good 45 minutes to an hour. And all of a sudden in the house, the lights pop on. And we all go, <gasps> and Mr. Miller is standing at the door. Look at the back. Mr. Miller is an intimidating man. Okay, he's a big guy with a deep voice. And so we we're like, oh no. So instead of doing the thing we should have done, which is hop out and go, oh, Mr. Miller, we're so sorry. We thought you were out of town. We didn't think you'd mind. Da, da, da. We didn't do that. We just jumped the fence and ran. Now, what, how stupid we are is that it didn't occur to us that all of our cars were parked in front of his house. We're pretty sure he knew we were there, right? But we, we just thought, this is how you react. And so we ran, right? Uh, the reason I thought about that is because I got to thinking about exactly what I said, that when you are not sure that you belong somewhere, you behave very differently in that place than when you absolutely know you belong there. And interestingly enough, John, throughout this whole gospel, has been trying to give us assurance, confidence that we know God. Do we recall this? Yes? I mean, one of my goals as your pastor is that when you're feeling that sense of doubt, like, do I know God, that you go back to 1 John. Can we make a deal that you'll go back to 1 John? Just go back to 1 John again and again. And he, he's been repeating himself over and over and over again throughout this book, just trying to give you that confidence, that sense of assurance, right? And he says it comes from three places. He says, look, if you believe the truth about Jesus, that he's the son of God, you can have confidence that you, you're reconciled to God. You're right with God. If you love one another, you can be confident because that love for one another, it doesn't happen without a changed heart, right? Unless God comes in and changes your heart and desires, it, that's not gonna happen. And the third thing he says is not just that you love one another, but you love to do what's right. You, you are wanting to obey God, wanting to obey his commands. So he gives us those three things. And he's repeating himself over and over and over again. And now we're gonna get, I, I actually pointed out in week one of our study of this book, we're coming now to the verse 13 of chapter five. It's the thematic verse for the entire book where he's gonna say exactly that. I, I'm writing these things to you so that you would know that you have eternal life, that you are right with God. And then you might think that would be how he'd end because he's like, ah, boom, big crescendo. Like that's how we want to end. But then he goes in to talk about the implications of that confidence for our prayer lives. He's going to spend the entire last part of the letter, the last handful of verses talking about, well, if you believe that, that you're right with God, how do you pray? How can you pray? And I just, I'll tell you, I was convicted this week that I am not praying in the way that these scriptures are inviting me to pray. And you may find the same thing, that there's opportunity for growth in our prayer lives um, because there's a kind of confidence. And one of the things that we're gonna find is he's gonna say, you are not, when you are praying and, and coming to me in prayer, you're not like a kid who jumped the fence and needs to kind of hide the fact that you're here. 
The gate has been opened. You are welcomed in. The water's fine. You get to swim in the pool of prayer. You get to come into my presence. And so you behave differently in prayer when you know you belong in the presence of God, more so than if you don't. And if you think, if you've been, maybe you find that confidence in yourself. And, it, and so you're thinking, well, yeah, of course. I feel that way. I experience that on a regular basis. I, maybe I'll encourage you to remember that for many many of your brothers and sisters, because I have these conversations pretty regularly, that is not their experience of prayer. It is, there's this still this lingering sense sometimes of like, do I belong here? Am I okay to come into God's presence? And if it's not that, it's often maybe like there's some rituals and some behaviors that we adopt that indicate that maybe we're not as confident as we've been told we can be because we're adopting all these little kind of religious rituals around, I have to do this and this and this before I can pray. That may resonate with you. You know, it's like, if I did something wrong, I need to do like six things right and then I can pray. You ever done that one? Yeah. And that's all not the way God invites you to approach him. You can jump in the pool. You can jump in the pool. So I wanna read it to you piece by piece. And again, we're gonna see that because we're assured that we know God, there's a way we can pray. And I just wanna show you four things. This, this text invites you to pray this way. You can pray this way, all right? So let's start in verse 13. And let's just read the first couple of verses. We'll read a few at a time. All right, so he says this in verse 13, 1 John chapter five. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not think maybe you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life. So there's our thematic verse for the entire letter. And now look at where he goes next, because he's gonna now talk about prayer. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, towards God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now, do you immediately have instinctually a sense of how big a thing it is that he's just said there? I mean, it is massively big. And the first thing that he's inviting you to have is confidence in your prayers. That's the first thing. We can pray with confidence. Now, there's two types of confidence and there's way more that we could go through if we just spent our whole day talking about this. But in this text specifically, so we'll limit ourselves, there are two types of, two ways that we can be confident. The first is we can be confident in his presence. So did you note that he said, we have this confidence towards him? Did you catch those words? Those words literally mean, if you interpret them literally, they literally mean in his presence. So when you say you can be confident towards God, think I can be confident in his presence. In other words, there's a way in which I can come into his presence and I can be confident that I belong in that place. When I've entered the throne room of God, I've entered a place where I belong. Now, in case that is perhaps lost on you or sounds obvious to you, let me remind you that through the entire Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God said, no one can see my face or they will die. No one can enter into my presence, not Moses, not Abraham, not David, not any of the prophets. It's why Isaiah, when he encounters a vision of God and his holiness says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips and I have seen the Lord. And his assumption is, 
that's gonna be it for me because no sinful man can enter the presence of a holy and righteous God. It's not possible. And what's gonna happen now is that my life is forfeit and God does a cleansing work of Isaiah and says, it's okay, right? It's like a, it's like a, a work of cleansing that allows in that moment him to experience the presence of God in some way, not the fullness of the presence of God, but a, a vision of the presence of God. So throughout that entire old covenant, we're told this is doom for you. And now we flip the script and we come under the new covenant. And because of the work of Jesus, what John is saying is you can now come to the place where it used to would have been your death to be there. Now you can just dwell there. You can live there. You can come there freely. You don't need rituals to get there. You don't have to wait until you have cleaned yourself up enough or like we said, done enough good things after doing a bad thing. At your absolute worst moment, you are still covered in the righteousness of Christ and you therefore have access to the throne of God. You don't come there because of your own goodness. You come there because of the goodness, the righteousness of Christ. So you don't need I mean, you know, like ballplayers are really superstitious. Yes, like you see baseball players run out. I'm not going to touch the mound or I don't do this or I jump over the white line. Or, if you've been involved in sports, have you experienced superstition? Yes. And sometimes we approach our prayer lives that, that way. It's like, oh, I can't do this. Or I got to go over here and then I got to do this way or I got to be in this physical posture or I got to do this thing or I got to walk this way. And Jesus is saying, be done with all that. None of that is necessary. None of that is needful. All you need is me, and I'm enough. And so now you can come into God's presence with boldness, with confidence that you belong there. Now, look, this doesn't mean we come lightheartedly. It doesn't mean we come cavalierly. The thing that enables us to come to the presence of God, like we said, is Jesus. God's holiness has not lessened. It's not that we can now come into the presence of God with confidence and boldness because God became less holy and now he won't strike us down for being there. God has not changed. His holiness is exactly what it has always been and always will be. The only difference is Jesus who has removed the veil between us and God. It's amazing. And when you know that then, there's this... I, I, I don't have words to express what it would be like to have to be cut off from God and to know I cannot go there and then to be then changed and transformed at such a powerful level by the work of Jesus and through faith in his cross that I can now walk into that place in full stride. No trepidation, no fear, no sense of, well, maybe I don't have to peek around the corner of the curtain and say, is it okay to come? I don't have to. Uh, I'm going to knock. Is, is it okay to enter? He said, no, no, open door policy. Come on in. You get to come into my presence anytime, any place, anywhere because of what I've done in Jesus. Do you approach God with that kind of confidence? Here's what I would compare it to. I don't want to communicate any cavalierness, but what I will say is this, is do you have friends that have refrigerator rights at your house? Yeah, yeah. you need friends with refrigerator rights. Just walk in and help themselves, right? And you should have refrigerator rights at somebody else's house. And if you don't have friends with refrigerator rights, shame on you. You're not manifesting the gospel with your refrigerator as you should. That's right. I raised it to that level. That's how important it is to me. 
Look, there's certain people, if they walk into your house and help themselves to what's in your fridge, you're like, who do you think you are? (laughs) What do you think you're doing? Right? I don't know you in that way. And there's other friends that say, yeah, they walk in and they just grab stuff. Right? They just, yeah, of course. Yeah. And you don't think twice about it. Why? Because they come into your house with confidence, assurance that they're in right relationship with you and they belong there. They know that no one's going to slap their hand and say, you shouldn't be taking things from there. That's, I mean, look, at the risk of being silly, God has given you refrigerator rights, okay? He said, come in, help yourself. You belong here. Do you get what I'm saying? You belong here. So the second thing that he gives confidence in is that we will receive what we ask for. So if he says you have confidence towards him or in his presence, then if you notice how he finishes verse 14, and if we ask anything, and then he says according to his will, but I don't want you to focus on the caveat yet, the the qualifier. We're gonna come to that in a second. But he says, if you ask anything, not just some things I might answer, you know, I might not. Look, we've all experienced the reality of I'm praying something, I don't know if it's your will or not. We grow in our ability to comprehend God's will and to pray God's will, certainly. If you ask anything, I will hear you. And here, here doesn't mean like, oh, well, if I don't pray according to his will, does he like shut his ears almost like a toddler and go, no, 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 I don't hear you, I don't hear you. No, it doesn't mean that. He literally means you will have what you ask. That's what he says in verse 15. He will hear you and he will answer you. You will have what you ask of him. I, I wanna invite you to consider whether you are praying, believing that God will answer your prayers. Whether you are going to him with that kind of boldness and saying, Father, I'm asking you for this and asking for his healing power and his saving power and his sanctifying power and specific answers to specific prayers. He's inviting, he's saying, look, ask, any, ask anything. Now, let me get to the qualifier because he says, according to my will. Well, of course, it doesn't make sense to say anything other than this. And I don't want you to, to sort of limit your prayers. We should be trying to discern God's will and pray what we know according to scripture is God's will, okay? God is perfectly holy, perfectly powerful, perfectly righteous, possesses all knowledge. He cannot do anything other than what is his will because his will is perfect and God does not do anything less than what glorifies him most. This is his very nature. He cannot be less than God and he cannot do less than the perfect will that he possesses. So it makes perfect sense that John would say, well, of course, of course he's going to answer those prayers which are in accordance with his will. But I don't want you to lose the grandness of the promise of that. Now, look, in that statement, there is what we call an antinomy. That's an exciting word. Everybody say antinomy with me. This is a helpful word for you, all right? And I'll make a recommendation even before I explain this. Uh, This is Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. Look at this. It's a little one. I usually make big recommendations. Look how little, all right? Great read. It's mostly about why should we share our faith and how do we share our faith with others, especially in light of the fact that God is sovereign and and brings about his will, right? So how do I bring those two things together? We find the same thing when we think about prayer. How many of you have ever had the thought, if God does what he wants to do and everything that is God's will will be accomplished, then why should I pray? Anybody ever had that thought? 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm guessing most of us, right? This is what we call an antinomy, okay? Now, let me just warn you, I'm not gonna resolve the tension for you today, okay? What I am gonna tell you is this. Here's what an antinomy is when we talk in theological terms. An antinomy is two truths, two things that standing alone make perfect sense, but when you hold them up against one another, there's an apparent contradiction. Now, apparent is the key word there because the contradiction only exists because of our inability to comprehend everything and see it the way God sees it. It's not illogical. It's not counter to logic, but it does appear to contradict until God is able to make sense of it. And here's our job as Christians. When we encounter antinomies, our job is not to try to resolve the tension between those two things because we won't be able to. Our job is to live as though both those things proclaimed by God are true and to do what he invites us to do in obedience to those things. So an example here, when we think about prayer, as we're talking about today, it is absolutely true that God accomplishes all his will. He is sovereign and powerful. It's not as if God's will won't be accomplished if I don't pray certain things at certain times. Would we agree with that? We believe God is sovereign, we say amen. God has told us that our prayers matter and change things, that he has moved by our prayers, that he acts according to our prayers, that he responds to our prayers. And there's tension between those things. And we say, amen, you answer prayer, you respond. And so the job of every Christian is to hold that tension, not to try to, to resolve it into some simplicity. That's what we want to do. We want to simplistically try to figure out how those things fit together. And he says, trust that I'm sovereign, believe it and say amen to it and pray, pray because I invite you to pray. I call you to pray. I command you to pray. So our job is to live in that tension. Fair enough? Look, antinomies exist. I'll give you an example from physics, light. Physicists talk about how light exists both as particles and waves, and they can't understand how both those things are true. And yet at times, light functions like a wave, and at times, light functions like a particle. Now, those of you who are in the sciences and physics probably know way more about that than I do, but if my reading, if I've understood from my reading, Scientists have never been able to resolve that. They've never been able to say, how can light be both particles and waves? It's an antinomy, right? They exist in the physical world. They exist in spiritual realities as well. So I help you. I hope that helps you a bit. What I want you to see is the confidence you can have that God responds to your prayer. And so you pray. Fair enough? All right, let's go to the next thing. We can pray effectively. Now, we just talked about how God answers our prayers, which is like saying that they're effective. And I, perhaps I should have on the second bullet point, if you have uh, the sermon notes, I should have maybe been more specific. When I say this, the next verses are about how effective our prayers can be in one another's lives when we're caught up in sin. So that God is saying, I'm gonna invite you to pray for one another when you're caught up in sin because I'm gonna respond to those prayers and I'm gonna bring freedom from that sin to your brother, to your sister, now, this is where I was really convicted this week because I don't pray enough for you that God would set you free from sin patterns in your life. I don't pray it enough for my kids. I don't pray it enough for my wife. I don't pray it enough for my friends. And I don't pray it enough for my church family. Uh, I hope you'll join me in rectifying that if you're the same way. So listen to what he says next. And it's a, can I just warn you, hard turn of phrase, okay? But I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to explain it. He says this next in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. 
to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. That's simple and clear, right? Should we just move on? Let's see if I can help make sense of this. All right, so a couple things. Let's just try to apply some good biblical theology and just walk our way through this step by step. The first question we need to ask is, what is sin that does not lead to death? Is that a, that's a good question? What does he mean by that? He says, there's, if anyone sees their brother, their sister committing a sin, caught up in sin, pray. I mean, pray. And God will answer those prayers by delivering from that sin and giving them life. But he puts this phrase, a sin that does not lead to death. All right, so we gotta do a couple things. One, we gotta remind ourselves, well, John, what do you mean? Because according to the scriptures, all sin leads to death. There aren't some sins that lead to eternal separation from God and other sins that don't, right? That's what Romans 6, verse 23 tells us. The wages of sin is what, church? Death, right? The wages of sin is death. And by the way, here in verse 17, in chapter one, verse eight of this letter, or if you wanna to go to Romans 3.23, we're told everybody sins. So let's put those two things together. There is no sin that doesn't lead to death in the sense that all sin separates us from a holy and righteous God. Is there anyone who then is out from underneath that? Nope, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's no exceptions. There's no one for whom that's not true. That's what he means in verse 17 when he says, he says there's, there's sin that doesn't lead to death. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that doesn't lead to death. And we already said in chapter one, verse eight of this very same letter, anyone says they are without sin, they are a what? Anybody remember? They're a liar. Okay, so now we've got a challenge because we're like, okay, all sin leads to death. You're saying there's sin that doesn't lead to death. What, what could you possibly be talking about? Well, the next question we'd wanna ask is, well, okay, is he possibly talking about not spiritual death, but physical death? So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, talks about these brothers and sisters, these Christians, who are sinning to a degree that God, in order to discipline them, actually brings about their physical death. Paul says, as a result of your sin, some of you are sick and some of you have even died. And the point there is that God, in order to prevent them from continuing to slide further down into sin in a merciful act, brings about their physical death. Doesn't diminish their eternal life, but he actually brings physical death. That might be a new concept. Some of you, now it's an extreme kind of case, an extreme kind of what feels like an extreme kind of situation, but that's under the new covenant. It's those who are in Christ and yet it happens. Now, that is one possibility here. It is possible that he's saying there's sin that leads to death, that God would discipline you to the point of physical death and he's saying, if someone's died, there's no point in praying for them any longer. They're, they're in the presence of God. To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. So no longer need to pray for them, right? But pray for those who commit sins that don't lead to that physical death. That is a possible interpretation. I don't think it's actually what he's getting at here because, and here's why, in chapter three of this letter, when he talked about life and death, and John does this, a lot in his gospel as well. He, he's not talking about physical death. The only times John is talking about physical death, he makes it really clear. Like in John chapter 11, he uses the same phrase he uses here, but it's when Lazarus has died. And so he's talking literally about someone who physically died. The context makes it very obvious. The more normal way for John to use death and life is to be talking about eternal spiritual life and eternal spiritual death. 
So I think it's more likely that's what he's talking about here. All right, so now let's put all those pieces together. So what does he mean when you see someone committing a sin that does not lead to death? Well, the only sin that doesn't lead to eternal spiritual death is sin that has been paid for by who? Jesus. And that's what John is talking about. He's saying when you see a brother, a sister, their sin has been paid for. So sin that leads to death is any sin committed by a Christian. Any sin committed by someone who's in Christ because their sin will not lead to eternal death because Christ has freed them from the penalty for that sin. Amen? Now, so then he says, what will God do? And then I want, when he says, he will give them life. Again, not just like better quality of life here and now. Although being free from sin and not walking in it does lead to better life. Agreed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's, let's not do the thing where we act like the days where we were caught up in certain sin patterns. Those were the really fun days and now we're living these boring lives because they don't get to do that stuff anymore, that's evidence of a, of a dangerous place that your heart is. If you look back and relish sin from the past that you used to walk in, but don't walk in anymore, friends, that's dangerous. Because what you're really saying is my heart still loves that. But that's not the heart of a Christian. The heart of a Christian is I hate my sin and I love the righteousness that God is growing me in. And it's not boring to live a righteous life. It is fulfilling and joyful, and freedom, okay? So he's not just talking, he is, there is a better quality of life, but he's not just talking about quality of life. He's saying that when you pray for one another, when you're caught up in sin, God will answer those prayers in such a way that he will bring about the perseverance of that person in the faith to the very end so that they receive the eternal resurrection life that comes when Jesus returns, that's what he's promised. What a huge promise. Your prayers will be part of bringing someone to eternal resurrection life with Jesus forever. That part of the reason on that day that when you pray for me, help Trent walk away from sin and not in unrighteousness, when you pray that for me, it's part of what God is gonna use to sustain me and carry me forward in the faith so that on the day that he comes, your prayers will be part of the reason that I receive the resurrection life. That's astounding. And that's what he's saying. Now, are there big stakes in our prayer life? Yes. Do you pray this way? Because I haven't been praying this way. We got to pray this way. Now, the last phrase, and um, actually, let me go to the next point before I come to that. So I, I want to make sure you understand. So how do we pray? How do we pray for one another? Here would be the, the tip of the iceberg. Okay? I think there's lots of prayers for man. Lord, help them know that they belong to you, that they're loved by you. I do think that prevents much sin. When we pray, let them walk in your love, experience your love, know your love. It's so often my failure to know that I'm loved and that I, that I am God's son that leads me to do things I shouldn't do. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So I think there's prayers like that. But I, I think the first thing I would, I mean, if you had to nail me down and say, well, what would be the first way to pray? It would be that we have to pray for one another. And again, he's saying, when you see them in sin. So it's something you know is happening. It's not just I'm guessing. It's right, like I know that my sister is sinning. So what do I do? The first prayer there, I think, is pray that God would bring them to repentance and pray that they would confess their sin. Like literally move them through your prayers to confession and repentance and say, God, beg with God, plead with God that they would come to a place of being 
just utterly devastated that they are living in that sin and that they would want no more of it. That they would confess it to God and that they would receive. Because what is 1 John 1 verse 9? This very same letter, if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Bring that confession, God, from my sister. Bring it from my brother. Bring a heart of repentance. You and you alone can do that. Break their heart. Always remember, friends, that the gospel, the gospel condemns us in guilt before it frees us in life. There is no gospel apart from deep conviction of sin and confession and repentance are required. We don't come to Christ by just going, I believe that you died and rose. We come to Christ by coming face to face first that there is a holy creator against whom I have rebelled and I am deserving of death. My sin is rebellion and wickedness. I confess it and I repent from it. I want to turn, help me, save me. And now we say, and I believe Jesus that you are the son of God and your sacrifice on my behalf is sufficient payment for sin. And I believe you rose from the dead that I might have eternal life. There is no gospel apart from confession and repentance. Yes, it's part of the deal. So now, so that's how we pray for one another. Now, let's talk about urgency because that's the next thing. And I wanna talk about this sin that does lead to death. And this is weighty, it's heavy, okay? I'm gonna tell you now because this is somebody you know, okay? The next thing he's, I think, instructing us is not just that we can have confidence that we belong in the presence of God, not just that we can be effective in our prayers in an eternal sense, I mean, really powerful, but also that there's an urgency to our prayers. Because you notice at the end of verse 16 that after saying, we pray for those who are committing sins that do not lead to death, then he says, there are sins that do lead to death, I do not say that you should pray for those. So in the very simple way, if the prayer that does not lead to death is all those covered by the blood of Christ, then what are the sins that do lead to death? Those which are not covered by the blood of Christ. Therefore, they are sins committed by anyone who has not come to Christ. And those will lead to death because the payment has not been made for them. Now, John doesn't have just anybody in mind here. He has specifically his opponents in mind. You remember we've been talking about them throughout the letter? And remember, what he said already in chapter two is, look, they went out from us, they left us because they weren't truly believers. They weren't truly of us. So he's not saying this is somebody who had faith and lost faith. He's saying they lived among us, they heard the gospel, they even gave lip service to believing the gospel, but then they denied Christ. They changed their tune and now they've, gone out from the church. And I think what John has in mind when he says, I don't tell you to pray for that, is that he's saying, there should be an urgency to your prayers for those in the household of faith that they would not become so hard towards sin that repentance becomes almost impossible, incredibly difficult. He's looking at those opponents and he's saying, the possibility of their turning to Christ after having walked in the body, received the truth, even proclaimed that they believe the truth, and then walking away, the ability to come to repentance at that point is very, very difficult. 
And so I'm telling you, pray with urgency now. Now, let me say a couple things here. Number one, I'm very thankful that he doesn't forbid praying for those folks because somebody is on your mind right now, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And I just want you to know that my heart aches. My heart aches at the thought that any one of you would live your life in this body for a time and then turn from Christ and reject him. But listen, I need to be really upfront with you. Hebrews 12 talks about Esau and it says that there was such a hardness of heart that had taken hold of him because he would not turn from his sin because there was no repentance that he walked in it and the longer he walked in it, the harder he became such that repentance became impossible. There is an ability to harden ourselves against the convicting work of God to such a degree that there is no longer an ability to turn in repentance. That's a very scary thought. Or at least if I, if I don't say impossible, although Hebrews 6 says impossible, here's what I know. I can never discern whether someone's heart has reached a place of unrepentance that is so calcified that they can no longer turn. So I'm very thankful that, that John here doesn't say, you may not pray for this person, but I do think he's saying, pray now before that time comes. Pray with urgency now. Hebrews 6, talking about this kind of person, says this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God their own harm, holding them up to contempt. Now listen, if I had that verse and that verse alone, I would believe you could lose your salvation. But I don't have that verse alone. I have that verse married with a thousand others that teach me that salvation is secure. I cannot lose it. I cannot relinquish it when it's real. Therefore, I look at that text and I say, you can give a lot of evidences and indications of the faith and truly not be saved. Truly not be in the faith. That's a scary thought. It's the same concept of Jesus saying, there will be many on the day that I return that say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, I didn't know you. So friends, as it lands on us today, the thing I wanna encourage you is pray with urgency now so that brothers and sisters who are caught up in sin would confess that sin and repent of that sin and walk away from it and not perpetuate it and go forward in it into greater hardening and further calcification of the heart against the conviction of God to the degree that it becomes next to impossible to respond and bring about repentance. Pray with urgency. Last thing, it's a great joy that we learn in prayer is not just that we can pray with urgency, not just that we can pray effectively, not just that we can pray with confidence, but when we pray, we can pray with Jesus. We can pray with Jesus. Look at verse 18. I'm just gonna make a very simple point here. Verse 18 and 19, he says this. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. And again, we've seen that phrase in the letter already before. He's not saying you're perfect. He's just saying the person who is born again wants to walk away from sin. There's this growing love of righteousness, okay? And he says, they don't keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him 
Now, there's two possibilities there. He who was born of God could mean us, you and I, that we do this protecting work, perhaps through the prayer that we just talked about, right? But I think it's more likely here that he who was born of God is not referring to you and me, but referring to Jesus. I think that's the most likely understanding of who he's talking about. And so he says, he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So here's what he's saying. When you and I pray, who is interceding at the right hand of the Father, according to Romans chapter eight, verse 34, for every single person in this room? Who is praying for you right now before the throne of God? Jesus. And so when I go to pray for you, when you go to pray for me, who are we joining in the presence of God in prayer? Jesus. And we get to enjoy the presence of God with Jesus. We get to pray to God through Jesus. And as we're doing that, does the Father love and hear the Son? Yes, he does. And so when I go through the Son and with the Son into the presence of God, what a joy that is. What confidence I can have that he puts his arm around me and says, you belong here with me. And we're gonna go pray together. Would you just enjoy the fact, when you go to pray for someone else in this room today, tonight, tomorrow morning, when you open the scriptures and you pray for somebody, Father, set them free from sin. Would you remember that Jesus is right there with you praying the same thing? That brings life and animation and joy to our prayers, to know that we're there with the one we love. We love him. We're hanging out with him. We're praying those things. And so he's inviting us to understand that. Now look at verse 19, because there's, he says, Jesus will answer that, will bring about that protection, right? He protects those from the evil one. The evil one does not touch him. We think, well, why? That's great, but perhaps you don't see the, the importance of that. Verse 19 tells us the importance of it. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In other words, what he's saying is before you were in Christ, you were under the thumb of the devil. You belonged in the world and under the power of the one who God for a time is allowing to have authority and power in that world. Not forever, but for a time, he has given the devil authority. It's why the devil could say to Jesus, I've been given authority over the kingdoms of the earth and I can give them to you. Bow down and worship me. Jesus doesn't say that's a lie. You don't have authority over the kingdoms of the earth, does he? He doesn't say that. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God alone. That's his response, right? I don't crave the kingdoms of the earth. I crave the glory of God. And by the way, all those kingdoms ultimately belong to God. But for a time, they've been given over. There's been authority. So friends, here's what that means. It means before we were in Christ, we lived in a cage with a lion, and there was no escaping that lion. That's a dangerous place to be. God, through Christ, unlocked the door and let us out. We don't live in the cage anymore. We're not under the authority that the world is under. We're in a new kingdom, a new sphere, a new power, a new glory. It's all ours. Now, there are ways the lion still can scratch in these days. He can still bite in these days. But ultimately, we do not live in his realm. We do not live in the realm of his authority. We live in another place, another sphere in the spiritual realm, and it is the place where God and Jesus have all authority, and that authority will eventually come to bear in this sphere in the here and now. Praise God. That's the protection he's provided us, Jesus, the one we get to pray to and with. So friends, I'll remind you, 
as we think about prayer and the assurance that we have that we are right with God, go back again to 1 John again and again and remember your reason for great confidence that you are right with God. And if so, then pray with authority. You belong in the pool. You did not hop the fence. You did not sneak in. You belong there. Go there with confidence. The water's fine, so come on in. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your power and the way you display it. We thank you for the promise that our prayers matter and that the invitation is to us that we may pray, that we may come into your throne room with confidence and boldness, as Hebrews 4 tells us, that we can find grace and mercy to help in time of need. So we pray, Father, that you would glorify Jesus through our hearts, take your word, plant it in us, produce a harvest of righteousness. Now would you receive our praises. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.